Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 120th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Manisha Takor. Manisha is the founder of Money Zen, a financial literacy and education platform focused on empowering women, and is also the VP of Financial Wellbeing at Brighton Jones, a $5 billion AUM independent REA based in Seattle, Washington. What's unique about Manisha, though, is the way that she's been able to build her own personal brand platform around personal finance over the past 10 years after starting her career in institutional money management and the ways that she's been able to turn her brand around personal finance education into a financially successful business. In this episode, we talk in depth about what it really takes to build a personal finance brand, why most financial advisors struggle to gain visibility with the media and even when they do, still typically fail to get any new clients from it, the ways that a personal finance brand can be monetized, not only from getting clients directly, but also even becoming a corporate spokesperson or brand ambassador, and the way that Manisha has been able to successfully build a personal brand as a speaker and media personality, despite the fact that she's actually an introvert. We also talk about Manisha's fascinating personal career journey from her Early success being an intrapreneur, building out a a new separately managed account line of business at an institutional money management firm that ultimately grew to nearly $6 billion under management, to a decision to relocate with her new husband that forced her to make a switch out of the firm and launch her personal finance brand instead, how marital troubles and a subsequent divorce eventually led Manisha back to working at a larger advisory firm to get better infrastructure support. And why ultimately Manisha decided to make one more switch to her current firm, Brighton Jones, to once again become an entrepreneur and help them transition their advisory firm from traditional wealth management to a focus on holistic financial well-being. And be certain to listen to the end where Manisha shares how she managed the ups and downs of her advisory firm while going through a stressful divorce, her frank discussion about dealing with depression, anxiety, and now medicated bipolar disorder and how through it all she's managed to stay successful by forming relationships and connections around her that she can rely upon, and by simply relying on the power of being yourself. Because as Manisha puts it, it's so much less exhausting to just be your authentic self than to try to be someone you're not anyways. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Manisha Takor. Welcome, Manisha Takor, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, I feel like I'm on the RIA version of Oprah, so thank you for having me. The RIA version of Oprah, I like that. So, so welcome to the couch. Let's let's talk. Uh, I, you know, I'm 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 excited for the the episode here because you you have I think taken a path in the industry that that very few have where. You know, like I don't know how else to put it. You, you, you carry this message that you want to get out of the world, get out to the world, and have just built your own platform to share your message around uh, women's empowerment and, and financial education literacy for women, and and then have figured out over the years, like 
you've built a business around this. I know at one point you had an advisory firm around this. Now you're tied into an advisory firm after you switch from another advisory firm and and have what I think is a a fascinating and and very non-traditional, I guess, for a, both current role and career path in the industry. And and so, you know, I know for a lot of advisors, just their goal is I want to serve clients well. I want to get a base of my own clients and do that and get paid well for the work that I do. And maybe someday I'll I'll be a partner in the firm and and like and that's their vision and more power to them. But I know there's a subset out there that I I think are closer to you that like there's this message inside them, this this thing that they've seen, this like secret that they understand about the world that they wish more of the world understood so that they could have a you know better finances or better relationship with their money or be more empowered. And and they want to figure out how to do more of that and can't because our traditional industry is really not built for people that have done cool but different things like you. And so I'm I'm just I'm looking forward to this discussion today of like how do you craft these positions for yourself? How do you make these platforms for yourself and just and find a business and a role and a way to get paid to share your message with the world? I'm laughing um, internally, as you said, how do you craft? Because the answer to that is you do not craft. It's it's one of those things where if I had told myself, this is, you know, how many, many years ago it was, 20 plus years ago when I when I got out of Harvard Business School, if I had said to myself, like, this is the career path I'm going to have, I, I would have laughed. It was so different than what I had originally expected. And so much of it was serendipitous. So much of it was my face planting. And then the person who kindly offered me a hand up took me in a whole new direction. And it, I know it sounds cliche to say you make your own luck or there was a lot of luck involved, but I'm just going to say there was a lot of face planting involved. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And luckily a nearby hand to help you up after face planting. Many, many kind hands. And I, and I have to say if there's one big thing I would say that I have learned about creating something is you don't do anything alone. You just, nothing meaningful happens alone. It happens through honest, authentic connections with others and being curious. And that leads you from one open door to another door that may open. And yeah, I think I the thing I wish I had known 25 years ago was just how important true human relations are to crafting a career, whether by design or by default or by face plant. I love that. I love that framing of just how important, as you put, like true human relations are. For me, I've felt a similar path forward. And, and you know, obviously, I, I have kind of a a similar dynamic myself, having crafted this role over time where one foot is in an advisory firm and one foot is external. You know, mine is a little bit more industry facing these days. Yours is a little bit more consumer facing, but that that same kind of split. And and I've certainly had the same on a phenomenon or realization looking back. Like if you had asked me even just 10 years ago as I was taking one one step out from being all in in the advisory firm as I had been previously, like I, I never would have painted it to be this, to be what it turned out to be. Like I I had to find that over time. A bunch of it was serendipity and luck. Some of it was face planting. Some of it was just 
at least being ready to open the door when opportunity knocked. I've kind of grown an appreciation for that saying, having experienced it a, a few times and and recognizing that a huge portion, a huge portion of the success I've had over the past 10 years came from all these relationships I built in the first 10 years of my career, which for me was mostly like getting involved in membership associations. I was active with Financial Planning Association, FPA. I co-founded NextGen. I got really immersed in the NextGen community. And and like these all these friendships and relationships I formed in my 20s then like became my business partners in my 30s. And now I'm finding are like people I can do even more interesting business and opportunities with as I'm now in my 40s because I'm at a further position along in my career and they're at a further position along in their career. But we have all these relationships that go back 15 plus years because we just connected with other people in the industry and like lo and behold, that networking stuff, if that's what you want to call it, like sometimes it takes 10 or 15 years to matter, but boy, it really does end up mattering in the long run. And did you, like, did somebody tell you that's what you needed to do or did it, did you just organically develop those relationships? I'm always fascinated by people who have as deep a set of, I hate the word network because it sounds so manipulative, but you have a lot of people who have your back. So did did you plan that? No, no, not at all. Like I, you know, at least for me, I, I'm an introvert and actually a pretty, a pretty strong introvert. So like, not only do I, am I really not a fan of thinking of it like literally as, as networking, but you say networking meeting and I'm immediately trying to figure out in my head what my appropriate excuse will be to get out of a networking meeting because that sounds absolutely horrible to me. I would like much rather be in the corner, in the like quiet, dark corner, maybe talking to one person than circulating a networking meeting. You know, for me at least, the only like what got it started was the the senior partner at the firm where I was that said, we are a firm that supports the Financial Planning Association. That means our team supports the Financial Planning Association. So let me know which committee you're going to be joining next year. And like, that's just the way it was. Like, that was the culture of the firm was, and I don't think they even did it for networking purposes. I think it, for us, it was actually much more of just this is a profession that's been good to our firm. So we are going to be good to the profession and give back. And, you know, we had a firm that just had been involved with local chapter leadership for even at the time, 10, 10 plus years. Now we've had someone on the local board, which is virtually every year for 30 years. And like, that was just the culture and I was sucked into it because there was no other choice. So I found my own path, which was actually much more you know, volunteering on committees and getting involved in small groups because, you know, giant networking chapter meetings were intimidating as an introvert. But that probably in retrospect ended up forming even more deep relationships because, I, you know, when you volunteer and get engaged, you really spend more time with people. And, you know, you just do that repeated over time and it turns out you you get to know a whole lot of people. I asked you that because we sat next to each other at... Oh gosh, I think it's like five years ago now at a dinner. And I think I was still a BAM. I can't remember if I had moved over. It was a it was a dinner at 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 Buckingham. It was, I think, one of their conferences. And I remember like we were at a table. Dan Solon was at the table with us. Yes. Yes. And just talking about the industry and 
meeting people we never met before. Well, and I remember you and I both mentioning to each other that we were introverts. And I think a lot of people would find that surprising because neither of us had problems getting on in, in a stage and talking to people or doing things like we're doing now. It was funny to me, like we were the quiet person's table because like Dan is also a very openly self-professed introvert that does not like these networking meetings as well. Like I sat down next to him and the conversation for the first five minutes was all these jokes back and forth of the ideas that we had been tossing around about how we were going to try to bow out of the dinner because none of us (laughs) wanted to go to the dinner meeting and have to network. But we decided like, you know, he was there because he was involved with Buckingham and Bam at the time, as I know you were, I was there as a speaker. So like we all decided propriety meant we should probably show up at the dinner. But like we all sat at the introverts' quiet kids' table. I don't think we meant to, but we managed to find each other. It was probably the table furthest from the loud music. Actually, it was. It was a corner table. And Dan and I laugh. We always find ourselves in a corner table. I bring it up because a lot of people think in order to have a successful career, you need to be an extrovert. And if people haven't read Susan Cain's book, Quiet, it's so powerful. I, I had always thought being an introvert was a weakness, especially on the institutional, you know, the first 15 years of my career when I was on the institutional side, I've got lots of stories about how I struggled with introversion and while I was trying to build out a $6 billion business for my employer. And, but I have come to find that it actually is almost a plus in the that you connect with people more deeply one on one because the big group thing just being at that superficial layer like I can't make small talk like I just go right to the heart of it and so it's you know I, I feel like both personality types can, can can succeed and for the first fifteen years I thought that I was going to have to carry the ball and chain of introversion with me and now I, I see it as a plus. So was there a particular thing for you that like pushed you into this direction? Like, oh, geez, I guess I have to go to some meetings and form relationships with other people. Like, was there was there something that nudged you over the line or some realization, right? Because otherwise, as introverts, I think we'll like, we'll just default to avoiding those forever as much as we can. Yeah. yeah so um, when I got out of business school, I started off in the the world of institutional money management, where we managed money for corporations, endowments, foundations, and our clients were CFOs or investment committees. And I, I started off deliberately as an equity research analyst. I had a really strong bent towards a Warren Buffett style of investing. And Warren wasn't hiring, but there's a very under the radar, but um, exceptionally successful self-made billionaire who also went to HBS. And his name is Fayez Serafim. And he recruits, the firm recruits at HBS and University of Texas. He's he's based in, in, in Houston. And who knows, he's probably worth three, four plus billion more, even more at this point, but he invests using the same strategy as a very similar high quality 
low turnover growth strategy. And so I went to work for him. And my my goal was to be an analyst forever because I could then build models and stay in my 401, my my 10Ks and my 10Qs and and um, your and your safe four walls. <laughs> yes, exactly. And in the early days I used to always have my door shut and I'd be in there and then I'd come out with my you know stock recommendation and one thing led to another and I was fouling the one of the different industries I, I fouled retailers and then I also fouled asset managers and security brokers and I noticed at the time there was this thing called separately managed accounts and that we only were managing money for large institutions and I felt so strongly in the quality of the way we were investing. We were on the active side, but like just over, you know, I, I would put it like one inch further than DFA, you know, not indexing, but not right. DFA. It's like Warren, like Warren Buffett active, not day trader active. Exactly. <laughs> and I just felt so strongly that people, individual people should have access to this as, as well. And this is before I learned I had no idea what suitability was or fiduciary was. I, I knew nothing about that. But I knew that these major wirehouses were offering separately managed accounts and we could get hired by those large firms and they would take care of the bulk of the details of dealing with, well, they'd take care of all of the interaction with the end clients and a huge portion of the operational details, though not all of them, of managing the accounts. But essentially to us, it would look more or less like one big account. And because I was an analyst following the industry and I saw the opportunity, I had mentioned this to Mr. Seraphim and, and he was a, an entrepreneur. So he said, well, let's give it a shot. And I did. And it basically made my my career. I started to build this business out. One of the things that I had to do was actually go tell people about it. And I can remember my very first, and when I say tell people about it, I mean, w once we had all the infrastructure in place, at this point, I was now a portfolio manager and I needed to go out and tell the clients of Morgan Stanley or the, the clients of, of Merrill Lynch, as it was at the time about our investment strategy, about our firm, and why they might want to consider us as one of the firms to select in their separately managed account. Or alternatively, I talked to teams of advisors about why they should do this. So I talked to advisors and I talked to the end clients. So long story short, I can, I can so clearly remember my first time speaking about this. It was at a steakhouse way out in like the burbs part of Houston. And I, it was hosted by a wholesaler from Dreyfus named Marla Press, who's been a dear friend of mine ever since. And there are, I don't know, 12 people, 14 people at this table. And I dry heaved the entire way from the office to the steakhouse, <laughs> like the whole way. Thank God I didn't hit anyone. Um, and it was like a 30 minute drive. That's a lot of dry heaving. Yes. That's, that's just, that's a lot of time to sit in your car and build up even more tension and anxiety about the fact that when you get to where you're driving, you have to give a speech in front of other people. Oh, it was, I just remember it so clearly, but I was terrified. But once I started talking and once I got past the small talk part and I got talking about the philosophy, which I so believed in, I discovered suddenly I actually had a gift for the gab as long as I was talking about something that I felt passionate about and not making small talk. 
Anyways, fast forward, by the time I guess I had been at the firm over a decade, by the end, I was often doing six presentations a day. I mean, I was like living out of my roller bag, traveling all over the country, building this thing up. And while I was the portfolio manager, I also was the face of it. And I just through sheer repetition, honed really strong speaking skills, but it was not pretty in the first year or 18 months of listening to me. So two things that that come to mind, just, just hearing this, the, the, the first is this point that you make that, you know, the small talk is terrifying, at least for, for most of us as introverts, but then get me on a topic that I'm knowledgeable about and passionate about. And all of a sudden, a lot of these challenges and fears melt away. I mean, it's certainly it's certainly been the same experience for me, right? Like, how do I end out in a world where a big portion of my business is public speaking in front of giant audiences as an introvert, where I'm normally terrified to be out in front of well, giant offices or even a room full of networking colleagues. Once you get some topic that you're passionate about and confident about, it's, it's kind of fascinating how some of that fear starts to melt away. And and I was struck, you mentioned earlier, Susan Cain's book on introverts. And you know, truly for anyone out there who's listening, who either you know is an introvert or, or frankly, just would like to better understand the introverts in your life, a friend, a colleague, an employee, a spouse, whoever it is, it's a fantastic and, and very well-researched book. And one of the points that Susan Cain actually makes in the book is that this is a well-documented phenomenon that there's at least a subset of introverts that turn out to be remarkably active public speakers because as long as they can get into a topic that they're passionate and knowledgeable about, suddenly most of this fear disappears. I won't say it all disappears because at least for me, there's still like that moment right before you're about to go on stage going like, oh my God, I hope I don't screw this up. And like the slides don't break and there's not a heckler in the audience, like all these things that you still have as a fear every time you're about to go up on stage, but then you get three minutes in and nothing is blown up. And it's like, okay, I'm going to find my groove now. And then it's, and then it's fine. But this, this idea that there actually is this strange comfort zone for introverts in public speaking as long as you get something that you're passionate and confident in knowing in the first place, and then suddenly it like works out amazingly oddly well. Yeah, and not to belabor the point, but it in the the decade that I was building out this separately managed account business, in order to do this as an institutional asset management firm, typically institutional asset management firms have equity analysts, portfolio managers, and client relation executives. And the roles are sort of blended together. And oftentimes, by the time you rise up, you're doing a, a bit of all three. And what I found, oh, and as a result, we tend not to have, most of these firms tend not to have a sales force. So we had teamed up with the Dreyfus Corporation. They have a whole bunch of mutual funds that they offer on their own. And then they also sub-advised for, for firms that were trying to do what we were trying to do with the separately managed accounts. So they had a team of 50 wholesalers. And so I would travel to all of these 50 different, you know, I traveled to all the states with the wholesalers. And they all knew, like, if there was an evening event, 
like Manisha stays in the corner and is not to be talked to during the the cocktail intro section. And the minute the dinner is over, she is in the car and gone. And like, I mean, it was like legendary. Like people would laugh at my, you know, complete inability to handle anything other than the meat of the conversation. And the reason I just go over and over this is I just, I feel like, especially in the financial services industry and on the RIA side, where there's so many natural extroverts that I want to give introverts who might be listening, just this knowledge that, that they're not alone. The other thing I want to ask about is you, you sort of glossed over lightly this, like, I was a junior analyst and I went to a billionaire and said, hey, can I make this business line? And he said, sure, go for it. How exactly does that happen? First of all, I was terrified to go talk to him. And he, I, I, I've now come to call him Papa. He's the kindest, most brilliant, amazing person but he's a man of very few words. And back in the day, he's in his 80s now, but back in the day he, when he was like a real, one of the powerhouse investment figures in the state of Texas, Barron's called him the Sphinx because he originally was from Egypt and um, also because he just was so, what's the right word that I want to use? If he spoke in a conversation with you, 30 words, that was a big conversation. And those 30 words were spot on, like un, like unbelievably insightful. So anyways, I say, I want to do this and he's an entrepreneur. So he says, sure, go figure it out. And while he didn't actually come out and say this, the implication was, and you have no resources. So you need to go do this all by yourself. And when you have something to show me, come back. So, you know, the first 18 months, it wasn't like somebody handed me the keys and I had this team. And I mean, I was working seven days a week for, you know, a very long time, well beyond the first 18 18 months. But the first 18 months, it was like me and my assistant, and we're just trying to figure this whole thing out. And I think that's one part a lot of people don't recognize or honor enough is what it looks like when you're starting anything. Even when you're starting something within a a corporation that has lots of resources, it's rare that somebody lets you, especially when you're you're young, um, start off by accessing those resources. And so you made your case, he at least gave you enough rope to hang yourself with or something to that effect. And you just started trying to figure it out because you really wanted to do it? Like just, it was a personal drive thing? No, it was, it was more of like, I've heard people say like, you need to do the thing that you can't not do. And that was my first experience with that. It's not that I was like wanting to do it. It was that I couldn't not do it. And I can't explain why. I mean, you, you need to do the thing you can't not do. Just accept it and go do it. Yes, and it's and usually those things are stuff again coming back to this theme of terror which I think will come up uh, several times during our conversation. I went out of business school specifically into the role of an equity analyst because I did not want to manage people. I did not want to have to deal with a wide set of ever-changing decisions. I wanted to become an expert at one thing and do it over and over and over again. 
And all I can say is something must have happened through my analysis because I'm, I'm at this point I'm I'm analyzing as potential investments all of the publicly traded asset management companies and securities brokerage houses. So everyone from T Rowe Price to uh, you know City with its well now Smith Barney. Um, and so I think there's just something in my gut that felt like I. I like I needed to do it. And in retrospect, you know, I'd like to think of something truly noble. Like I could see all of these individuals out there invested in funds that are having a hundred and you know 50% turnover and generating unwanted tax consequences. And they need to be with us and our 10% turnover and our higher quality companies. But it wasn't that, you know, you look back and you think, why did I do it? I hope that was running through my head, but all I knew was I was I started doing it and then I wanted to do it more, then I wanted to do it more. It was like a Sudoku and I just couldn't stop till I could finish it. <laughs> so you're obviously not still there. So does that mean at at, at some point you you finished it, as as you put it? Like it it ran its natural course. Yeah, you know, how how do how did you get from Building this business line, being there, and I know, like you got it to, uh, as I understand, many billions of dollars by the end of this SMA platform. So, had an incredible, incredible, successful run. But you're not there now. So what? What happened? What changed? When I left, I think it was at five point eight billion, and I mean, literally, I can remember we started with zero. And I mean, I could remember we had our first hundred million, like hooping and hollering. And then as we started, you know, to, to move up to 500 million and then a billion and then two and then three billion, like, you know, we'd have like all firm cheers as this, you know, every time we'd hit a crossover another billion. And I genuinely thought I would be doing this just forever. And at this point, I was in my mid 30s and I'm of Indian heritage. So if you're a woman in your mid 30s and you are not married, you are like milk past its sell by date. And I just I don't know, because I'm an introvert, I went to a women's college, I went to Wellesley College for undergrad. I just never dated very much and I just thought, well, I guess I'm going to be married to my work. And then serendipity popped in. I had done well. I decided to buy a loft and I did. And two doors down from me was the man who ended up becoming my husband. And he was 20 years older than me and an intellectual property trial lawyer, had been his whole career in Texas and done very well. And so he was, you know, in his mid 50s and thinking about starting to think about retirement. And he ultimately decided he wanted to retire. And his dream had always been to retire to Santa Fe. And back then, the idea of working remotely was just, you know, like now we don't think anything of it, but it was just almost inconceivable in the financial services world to, to work remotely. So I got married because in the Indian culture, you need to have your elders blessing. In addition to my parents, I had Mr. Seraphim. I ha he brought my uh, husband over to his home and he met him and he came by and told me I had done well and I had his full support and he was really happy for me. But working from Santa Fe was just not, at that time, just not an option. And so that's that's why I, I moved on for marriage. And so 
where did you land? I mean, I guess in Santa Fe, but where where did you land as you built this, you know, huge SMA platform and then had to leave it for marriage? Or I guess not had to, like cho- chose to leave it for um, for marriage. So thus begins my very weird trajectory through the retail world. So at that point, I had been working for 15 years on the institutional side. And towards the end, one of my dear friends from business school, Sharon Kadar, and I had noticed Sharon has an identical twin sister who went to Harvard Medical School. So how happy are her parents, right? And um, so one one went to Harvard Business and one went to Harvard Medical. Yeah, um, fantastic. Just a little brain power in that family. The twins are doing well. Good. <laughs> so what we came to realize was not only were our super smart girlfriends from business school who went into strategy or operations or other areas of business that were not directly related to the financial functions of the firms they were working for. And then our smart friends who were doctors and lawyers and architects and graphic designers, they all started asking us these really basic questions about personal finance. And we would recommend you know, books that we liked. And they'd be like, okay, I can't get past chapter two. This is so boring. So we thought, well, what the heck? Let's write like the summer chiclet beach read version of the basics that a woman should know in her 20s and her early 30s because we knew if we can get you in your 20s and early 30s, we can change your life. Certainly, we can help you later, but it's way easier if we can get you started right out of the gate. And so we wrote this basic, basic primer for women in their 20s and 30s called On My Own Two Feet. A Modern Girl's Guide to Personal Finance. And it still exists. We did a, a second edition in 2013. I think we are we need to update it again, probably do a third edition. And uh, it sold over 40 or 50,000 copies over that time period, slowly. I mean, this is like, you know, this was never a bestseller. It was like a, a creeper. But it was it's the evergreen nature of the desire for women to have this information in a very straightforward manner that we we noticed. And then we we wrote a follow-up book called Get Financially Naked, How to Talk Money with Your Honey. And while I was still in the institutional world, we had done these and they were like, a, you know, our back then the word side gig didn't exist. But if it had, this would have been our side gig. It was just something we did for fun on the weekends. I loved writing. Sharon's a big strategic thinker. So you didn't, so like, this wasn't a whole, you know, book project, pitch a publisher or get a contract to go make a book. Like you were just writing slash venting things you thought other women should know about their personal finances in their twenties and thirties. And your friend helped you make it into a book. So we had the idea, but then, you know, being triple type A people, we did go and get a literary agent and they sought out a publisher. But it wasn't like we were trying to write, wasn't like we were doing this to create careers as authors. It was all, that's how, because again, this is before self-publishing. Like if you have a book, that's how you get it out there. So yeah, we we did have a publisher, Adams Business, which has since been acquired by Simon & Schuster. And our literary agents are Waterstone Productions out of Southern California. 
and they've all been wonderful to us, but it, it, the bigger driver behind that was just sharing this information. So we didn't have to keep repeating it. We could be like, here's the book. (laughs) And so, and then, and then we also really wanted, and this is where it first started bubbling up for me to to help younger women. And so we didn't want the book to come out in hardcover, even though we would have made more money if it had, because we wanted it to be $12 or less. So people would actually buy the thing. And so long story short, those books happened while I was still on the institutional side, but it was a true labor of love, you know, and some people cook and some people, you know, knit and we wrote books on personal finance, you know? And so, but the thing was, we both were in a position because of the nature of we're, our work, we both worked for institutional asset management firms that it, and the, you know, pay structure in that world is dramatically different than on the retail side. And so it was like nothing for us to hire a top publicist to get the word out. So we did, and we hired the publicist because we genuinely wanted to spread the word to 20 and 30 somethings that if you do a few basic things, we can change your financial life forever. But what what happened is we started doing this, the PR person got going and it turned out I loved doing media and was a natural at it. And so of the two of us, I just kept doing more and more and more. And so by the time I left and we had built our home in Santa Fe and I tried retiring for about four months and that was an abysmal disaster. I thought, well, what can I do? And I thought, well, there's all this media around the books and there's Susie Orman. Why don't I try and be like her? So I then entered, I call it my Susie Orman light phase where for three years, I literally tried to figure out how to build a career being a financial I don't like the word guru, but thought leader. Is that better? Well, well, I was going to say thought leader is what I hope I morphed into in the media world. I I wanted to have a financial media presence in a, a, in a unique way that would make an impact likely on TV and or radio podcasts weren't a thing back then. So, so when was this just timing wise? You know, it's so funny, Michael, as you look back, you try and think, when was this? So it would have been right during the financial crisis because I had perfect timing on that. Um, <laughs> so 2009, yeah, 2008, 2009, right at the end of one, beginning of the other. So so I'm just trying to sort of understand the context. So you 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 had this amazing stint in the institutional world. You know, did very well for yourself. I know it, it tends to pay relatively well in the first place, probably a lot better when you actually build an entire nearly $6 billion SMA line for the, the firm. You know, you make a transition of Santa Fe, getting married to a husband who's at least semi-retiring. You tried semi-retirement, got bored really quickly, as you know, do most of our clients, and, and, and I guess came back into this with like – was there a lot more vision to it beyond just, hey, Susie Orman seems to do this and it works out well. I'm going to try that too since the media is already calling. Like, is that about what it came down to? Was there a grand vision of like where you were going with it? Yes and no. Thankfully, I had done well enough on the institutional side 
And I'm just going to diverge for a brief second, talk about prenups, which I feel very strongly about. And only 3% of uh, prenups, as I the last data I saw, are initiated by women. When I married my husband, I was his second wife, and he had two adult children, and I didn't want, I'd done very well. So I didn't want them, and he'd done very well, but I didn't want them to think I was a gold digger. And so I asked that we have a prenup that he could show the kids, like that we have only one joint asset, and it's a house we built in Santa Fe. Other than that, each of us have our own set of assets. There's nothing I'm going to be taking away from his his family. And I was really glad that we did that for a variety of different reasons. But as a result, like I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the the funds that I have, and I realize I can literally do anything that I want. And uh, not because it's like a super huge number, but I'm a super frugal person. So the the number worked with my frugality. There's a certain style that a lot of people are attracted to with Susie Orman. And I realized that there are a number of people that are not attracted by that style. And so I wanted to bring to the media world the another kind of option and personality for learning about that. I will say that my passion for helping women become economically empowered has it's been a long running theme through throughout my life and I owe my mom and my dad are the ones that that instilled that in me at a very young age. So that was the altruistic part. But then there's the ego part and when you first start doing media there's like this head rush. And when I first started doing it it was back in the day when everybody watched CNBC. And so I'd go on CNBC and literally my, because back then we all used Blackberries, my Blackberry would blow up and people would be like all over the country, people that I had met as I'm, you know, visiting all of these different offices in the 50 states while I'm building this business. I'd get emails like, oh my God, I just saw you. I just saw you. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to say, when I was doing that, that it was all about sharing the information. But when you're on TV for three minutes, you're not sharing information. When you're a woman, you are actually in the hair and makeup chair, typically 10 times as long as you are actually on air. And I'm not joking. It's like for every every three minute spot is 30 minutes of hair and makeup. Yes. Yes. It's, it's, it's crazy. And, um, but it was an ego rush. And when I look back at that period, now I'm very clear that I was driven m- by altruism and 80% by just sheer ego. Because in the institutional world, and especially at Fiaserf and where I worked, we were very much taught to stay beneath the radar and be quiet and let the work speak for itself. It's a very genteel sort of world where self-branding, like that just doesn't fly. And so I, I didn't have any of that before. And then this came and it was like, whoa, it was like the media version of, of like cocaine or something. You know, it's like, I want more. Feels good. I want more. Yeah. And, I, and that, it's, that's a dangerous slope to go on. We can talk more about that if you'd like. I, I can't say I'm proud of that period. I'm just saying that, honestly, I wish I could tell you it was 100% altruism, but it was at least 80% ego. But you did start... So I actually do want to come back to that in a minute, but really you, you did actually start building this, you know, self brand, this media brand along the way, you know, and I, now the platform's called money's End. I don't know if you were 
uh, calling it that out of the gate. Like, can you talk to us a little bit more of how money Zen came out? Like, I guess feeling it tells how how you how you turned an ego rush into an actual brand because that's still a really cool evolution to be able to get it there. You know, we certainly we know or can think over the years of a zillion different people who get into the media, have their proverbial 15 seconds of fame, and then vanish. But you have sustained this into much more of a platform and a business. So how did that come about? Or how did you figure that out? Where What was the evolution from, hey, this media stuff is just fun because it feels really good and what an ego rush, to, to building a business? So I think it was two things. First, I have a gift for making complex things simple, um, mostly because I need them to be simple to understand them myself. And so what I found happening was that the media just kept reaching out and then kept referring me to other people because I I was such a different voice. And, you know, I'm I'm 48 now, and by the grace of God, when I was younger, I always looked through the bulk of my institutional career, I looked like I was 12, and I hated that. People are, you know, this was back in the day, so people were like literally ready to give me their coffee orders when I would walk in the room, and then I could see the shock when they realized I was the speaker. Now that I'm, I'm, you know, within a stone's throw of ARP eligibility, I'm glad that I, I look a lot younger than my years so far, knock on wood. As a result of being able to explain things simply and looking younger than I did, I seemed like a fresh new face. And so I, I was a bit of a dancing monkey. And so that picked up on, on the media side. And then, you know, like you have a business head, it just kicks in. And I started to realize, wow, there are a lot of different things I can do. I could be a corporate spokesperson. And so I teamed up with a number of wonderful organizations over the years. The longest standing one was TIAA CREF, now just called TIA. And I mean, they're a phenomenal organization and they help the medical and educational communities. And I loved the the work that I did with them, which was a lot of public speaking to their clients. Curious for, because this whole realm of like, what does it look like to be, uh, I guess I don't even know what you call it, like a, a, a corporate media spokesperson or a corporate ambassador it's like like you weren't their spokesperson like you're i mean they're their own corporation you're attaching your media brand to it like how does that work cuz we don't get the we don't get that in advisor world like how does that work no yeah so it's a it's an interesting subworld a lot of corporations like to team up with personalities Today, the hip word for that would be influencers, but back then, they would call you either a corporate spokesperson or a brand ambassador, and the idea was that you would be sharing your knowledge in one of two ways, and sometimes you would do both, and sometimes one or the other. One would be speaking directly to their customer base as a fresh voice to explain the things that they're doing. The other would be when they're doing media message, when they want to get out a media message about an initiative or something that they're doing, they will do a press release where they hire an expert that is able to talk about a wide range of topics 
that also has the ability to work in the messaging about that initiative. And it's all straightforward. Like they, when they're pitching to the media, they let them know this is a, a corporate spokesperson. These are the different topic she can speak to, but she's also going to make a plug for what we're doing. And so the idea is not just that you can, you know, speak well to talk about their issues per se, because they can also just hire their own employee to do that. Like the, the point in part is you are your own brand entity, I guess to use the modern term, as you said, like you're your own influencer with your own audience as well. That's why they want you to do it because you bring third party credibility as this separate personality brands, but you'll carry their message and that's what makes it work for them. Precisely. And in the early days, your brand came from being on TV and from print mentions. Today, that influence is driven by your social media presence. But back then, I did a lot of TV and, and print media and therefore, I was fulfilled those boxes. And that's that's the model. And the model still exists today. It's just shifted more towards social media influencers. But it's like a whole sub-business. And they're just like there are headhunters for jobs. And there are uh, talent agents for actors. There are agencies that do nothing but look for brand ambassadors and corporate spokespeople for various different campaigns. And sometimes it's as short as a satellite media tour where you are just doing a series, like you'll sit in a room literally for an entire 12, 14 hour day. And from coast to coast, you'll do all the morning shows, afternoon shows, evening shows, and you do TV and radio. And you're usually hooking into a specific message um, for the company. And then, um, and those would be like a one-off engagement and then sometimes you'll work with a company for four, six, 12 months or, you know, multiple years doing this work. And so that's the first way I monetized what I was doing. And, you know, not that you have to give like exact details of particular companies, but can you just give us some context? Like, how do you get paid or what is this pay? Like, is this, you know, you get a thousand dollars for the day just to do all these media appearances in a marathon or is this like we'll give you you know your brand is fantastic we'll give you fifty thousand dollars just to do all of these media brand interviews for the day and and talk about our big announcements and you know you only have to do a couple a year to to make your dollars like how does this work financially so like everything it's negotiable and it depends on how big a name you are I was never, I can't see Michelle Obama being a corporate spokesperson, but if she were, like, there would be, like, many more zeros after what she was paid. Than right, what- like, just sheer brand visibility still as a driver here, I understand. Right, so I was certainly not at the Olympian level of doing this kind of work, but it, it actually is quite lucrative if you are skilled at bringing in the company's messaging in an authentic way so it doesn't seem slimy. It seems straightforward. And that's a rare gift. So they they pay well for it. And so most, I would say a fairly common way to price is either a day rate or a project fee. And the project fee essentially backs into how many days of work are you going to have to do for this. And most people start off with a day rate of $5,000 and I peaked at 12,000 and I would say 15,000 is sort of the upper end if you're not like super huge. If you're super huge, like, whoa, the sky's the limit. But it's a fairly darn lucrative. Interesting. So that's actually like, 
it's not dissimilar to this to the speaking world as well, where you know lots of people in like National Speakers Association hit the speaking circuit, and you know for a day of their expertise, it's five thousand, ten thousand, fifteen thousand. Most people tend to top out there unless you're again like one of these uber media stars, uber popular folks, and then you know the sky's the limit in speaking, as I guess it is in spokesperson brand ambassador roles. But that's interesting how 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 paralleling that actually is i never really thought of like the you know the national speakers association and brand ambassadors in in like similar business models but i guess it really is well and then serendipitously i met a woman who's now has been a dear friend but she was very active in nsa so i hadn't thought about keynote speaking but she was like you totally should be doing that so then the next part of my business model was i joined nsa and i started doing keynote speaking and and so you know then you get in with some bureaus and one thing happens to another so my my monetization model in my Susie Orman light period was corporate spokesperson revenues and keynote speaking predominantly and so so you like that was in addition to doing brand ambassador work or was the idea like I want to move away from brand ambassador work and more directly to speaking well, they're both kind of the same. They're just in different ways. And so I never, I mean, I, I had envisioned them at that period as being a barbell approach and a wonderful way to have diversity of impact and work and keep my skills fresh. And so they actually, you can build an entire business off corporate spokesperson and keynote speaking as long as you're continuing to develop your expertise so that you have something fresh and new to keep saying. So when when did this formalize into this money zen platform that I know you have now? Like did that was that there from the start you began this launch money zen then started doing brand ambassador or spokeswoman work and then started the speaking world or did it come later? So uh, I can't remember the exact year, but I, I first started off just calling myself very creatively Minishitaquor Enterprises. And then, I don't know, 18 months, two years into it, sitting out on our portal, staring at the gorgeous Santa Fe blue sun, and the water fountain is going, and our little, you know, pebble rocks are around it, and I'm feeling really zen, and the phrase money zen comes into my head. And so I'm like, I think that's what I should call this at the time, I wasn't really thinking of it as a business. I was thinking of it as I'm too young to let my brain rot. And I, I, Santa Fe is a magical, magical, magical place. But the, the neighborhood we lived in was predominantly made up of retirees. And so I was by wide margin, one of the youngest people floating around. And I just felt this urge to stay engaged. So at the time, I wasn't thinking Money Zen was a, a business so much as it was for me to have a, a growth vehicle and make an impact. And so I think about my time in sort of chunks. So the beginning chunk was Susie Orman Light, corporate spokesperson, keynote speaker. And then what started happening is people started asking me if I would manage their money. And I'm like, oh, I don't do that. And you know, after about like the 14th time of saying, no, I don't do that, I thought, why don't I do that? And so... That's when I decided like, well, let me try this RIA thing. And I knew nothing, nothing about this world. 
And so I researched it for like a year because I had been so living in the suitability world predominantly because when I was researching, although Fiaserafim and company is a fiduciary, most of the investments that I had been looking at in terms of stocks to recommend, and then also when we were doing the SMA business, unbeknownst to me at the time and un- uh, not understood by me at the time was that those were being distributed primarily, if not entirely, by advisors operating under the suitability standard. So, you know, it, it took me a whole year of research to kind of dive in and figure out what it would take to try and start my own practice, having never, ever been a financial advisor. So, and it's kind of an interesting effect that like you're I mean, I'm just envisioning certainly on like your 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 writing books for predominantly young women in their 20s and 30s around financial literacy, and then lo and behold, a few people who have a lot of money are actually asking you to manage theirs. I, I would imagine that's sort of a strange like not wasn't really writing this book for you, but gee, I'm flattered. Thank you. Is that a strange transition that like these this was not what you were looking for, but it's part of what showed up. You know, it's outgrowth of who my girlfriends were and the stage of life they were at. While I was doing the financial literacy work for younger women, my just natural friend tribe were my, you know, classmates from um, undergrad and business school who are now, you know, hitting stages in their careers where they're making, you know, well into the six, if not in the seven figures. And so it was just a life stage that my girlfriends were at and they trusted me. And I loved talking about this stuff. And, you know, if you're not in our, you know, if you're, if you are a management consultant at Bain or McKinsey, you are flipping smart, but you, you don't, you're generally not immersed enough in personal finance to understand the difference between asking somebody who's spent their career on the institutional side and done a lot of financial literacy work versus somebody who has been a CFP for 15 years and is deeply knowledgeable about all aspects of financial planning. Like, you don't know the difference between those two. So ironically, you're saying like they, you were like, why are you asking me who should be calling a CFP? I feel like that's what you just said. At the time, I didn't even know that. I thought like, well, of course you're asking me. Like I have spent my whole career in business. Of of course I would know. All I've done is manage billions of dollars. Sure, I can manage yours. And and that's the key thing that I want to emphasize is that this shift from corporate – the managing money in a corporate setting versus personal finance. They're totally different worlds. Yet naively, when I first got started – because I had been so immersed in the financial literacy component, it seemed like, well, must not be much of a stretch to have all that, you know, to have built out nearly a $6 billion business, to have built this media presence around financial literacy. A logical next step seems, why don't I start my own RIA? And it was like one of those cases of you don't know what you don't know. So I had my CFA. And so I studied for the CFP and I got it and took all the other 65 and everything else and thought like, well, let me let me give this a go. And so I just didn't know how much I didn't I didn't know. Thankfully, the people that were coming to me for advice and guidance were at a stage in life where what the, what help they needed me to provide was exactly was matching the 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 limits of my knowledge. 
as they got wealthier, and it's not like I did this for a long time. I, I, I think I had it for two and a half or three years. But, you know, eventually it, it became clear to me that either I needed to get deeper in my knowledge and interest in the intricacies of managing money holistically for high net worth individuals or blend into somebody who had that that capability. So I mean I don't want to sound like I I what was taking it on lightly. I think the point that I want to make is that a lot of people do not a who are starting firms do not know what they're getting into if they have not come out of an advisory firm. And so a lot of people who were like me in the institutional world often will say like, well, in my retirement, I'll manage money for people. Just how wrong that notion is, like completely misguided and misinformed about how much work and expertise it takes to thrive in the RIA world. So so as you were diving in, like, were you were you literally managing the money, like I, I did this for years for billions of dollars. I was an equity research analyst. Like, sure, I can do this with the dollars that come in. I'll just you know manage the portfolios and then do my media stuff and the rest of the time. Like, was it that kind of model from the start? I, I know how to do this. I'm going to manage the money myself. Yes, although I had the good sense to know that from an infrastructure standpoint, I would need a TAMP, and so I interviewed a whole bunch of. Uh, perspective TAMPs. And I really adored Adam Birnbaum and and the team at the BAM Alliance. And so I decided to go with them. And so, you know, that took a lot of the operational pressure off of me. And I agreed so strongly with their investment philosophy. And so it was just a natural fit. So it, it made it it made it much more easier to be a, a solo person. And then again, because I, I had done well enough in my my institutional career, I was able to come out of the gate with a little bit of extra help that most people wouldn't be able to have. So I had a, a right hand who now has his own practice that he's he's merged into a larger firm. So I ha- it was me and another wonderful, wonderful man, Chris Gearbase-Pierce. So yeah, we I mean, we... We did everything a normal RAA within the BAM Alliance world would do. I also just happened to do a lot of media on the side. Well, and and I know one of the unique things about BAM, unlike a lot of TAMPs, is they actually have some flexibility about whether you essentially whether you solely use their models and systems or or well, I guess like whether you solely use their models and actual investment portfolios or whether you do some of your own investment model creation and design, but they're your back office that helps you implement it and execute it. So you can, you know, you you can do the portfolio design, but have their infrastructure for some of the portfolio implementation, which I guess is particularly appealing when you were coming from a background like yours that said, I like, I know how to do portfolio design stuff, but I don't want to hire all the traders and operations and all the, all the internal stuff. Y'all do that for me. Great. It was plug and play. I don't mean that that it was it was conceptually plug and play. There were a thousand and one things that I needed to learn that caused me to face plant like every third day. It it is really hard to get something like this off off the ground and running. But if I look back in retrospect, I was blessed that I had a number of friends, most of whom had worked in financial services on the corporate side, made great money, had no time to manage it on their own and trusted me. So, you know, I walked in with an advantage that most people don't have when they're starting up. It wasn't like I was trolling for, you know, people to give me their money. It, it it was the reverse. I got the question. So I started 
a business to help. And, you know, thanks to the TAMP model, it let me do what I was naturally good at and to keep and then to grow the business in non-traditional ways because I was out doing media. One of my largest clients came because she was in the airport and she read an, an article I wrote in a now defunct magazine for women executives called More Magazine, and she reached out to me. And so it all was very symbiotic. So that's interesting unto itself. I feel like there's a perception out there that does anybody with money really pick their financial advisor because they saw them on TV or in the media? For which I, I guess you would say like, yeah, some people really do, including some who have money. What I have found, I, I genuinely, I'm part of a DFA study group on media and we talk about this a lot. And I will say that it is the very, very rare person who can generate client leads from media in an organic way. So either you're doing like a Fisher model and you're like, you are just out there with a, a complete media strategy, or you're more of a unicorn. And I was in that unicorn camp. Like there's just something about the way that I write and I talk. It doesn't work for everyone, but I didn't need it to work for everyone. I needed it to work for women with 3 million or more in dollars who wanted to work with a fiduciary that believed in evidence-based investing. Like that was my world. And for those women, the way I spoke and taught and and presented the material was a fit for a number of them. And that was my niche. Just having been in that world and, and, you know, and seen this and seen this work, like, do you have any sense? I mean, what, what is it that it works for you and doesn't work for other advisors? I know it's kind of strange, like saying to a unicorn, what makes you a unicorn, but like, right. Like, like, do you, do you have any idea? Like, why why does it seem to click for you when it doesn't click for so many other advisors? Michael, I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I think about that sometimes because, I, I mean, I feel like I've just made like a thousand and one mistakes as everybody who has achieved any amount of success has. And so anyone who has kept going oftentimes is a very tough critic on themselves and constantly like looking back and analyzing what could I have done better or differently. And, and I'm very much like that. And I look and I, I don't know. I mean, I, all I can tell you, it's like, why do some people like butter pecan over strawberry ice cream? I just seem to have a strong fouling amongst butter pecan lovers. And I can't tell you why, but we just fit. And I don't fit for everyone, but for a specific niche, I just have worked really, really well. And the one thing that I do wonder as I look back is whether the keyword in all of that was niche. And, and the other key might have been a word I didn't use in there, but authentic's overused right now. But it was just like I was just raw and uncensored and myself. And I think that, that being that way with my tribe worked really well. I didn't try and be that with everyone. Because I just knew there were groups I wasn't going to resonate with. I think it's off figuring out the group of or groups of people in front of whom you can truly be yourself. Because we all know 
the stickiest client relationships are the ones where they feel a a deeply personal connection to not just your skills, but you. And so that's, that's what I think in retrospect happened, but it's only in retrospect that I can even begin to see that. So I, you know, it's an interesting point there to me that, that just, you kind of framed it around niche and authenticity, which I get to me at a high level, it's, it's just sort of this recognition that, you know, particularly when you're involved in the media, the, the reach is so wide. I mean, just it, you know, if you get to some large platforms, like it reaches a whole lot of people. You really get to a world where, look, if if you're just your authentic self to a a particular group of people that you connect with, you know, if one in a one hundred thinks what you're doing is interesting, and you're on national television, one in a hundred is a lot of prospects. One in a thousand is a lot of prospects that potentially show up. And you know, I feel like most of us spend our time just trying to make sure, well, you know, make sure we don't offend the majority of people or, or even a small minority of people, right? And like, must always look professional and credible and never say anything that's edgy and awkward. And, and, and I think particularly in advisor world, because we have this like pressure, you know, must maintain professional credibility to, to be an expert that people pay. When as, as you kind of know, there the flip side reality of that is, you know, wh- why do so many advisors struggle to get any successful business and generate activity over, off of the media? And and you do because, as you said, like yeah, you're you're your raw, uncensored self, and you know, just when you say what you really think, you, you still have to at least say it reasonably well and tactfully, and be educational and helpful to someone. But like, it's okay if you're not for everyone. It's even okay if you're not for most people because. If you actually just get 1% or a fraction of the percent of the people that see you in the media, you can actually generate a tremendous amount of business because the reach of the media is so wide in the first place. Like, Focus on being awesome connected to one out of a thousand more so than how do I you know, be moderately appealing to 50% of the viewers. Exactly. As soon as you start going down that second end, you 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 twist yourself up like a pretzel, and and you don't please anybody. So best to please a small percent and have a really good relationship with them. That that would be my takeaway from that period in my life. So what what surprised you the most of just the dynamics of dealing with individual clients versus where you come from in the institutional world? That the part I loved most was the conversations about money, meaning, purpose, life. You know, from a pure investment standpoint, I'm, I am a, you know, I believe in being debt free. I believe in saving as much as you possibly can as early as you can. I believe in deeply living within your means. I, you know, the, the kinds of things that I feel like people need to have in place are straightforward. And I mean, this is what I'll just like the analogy that comes to my mind is my dentist says this to me all the time. Like, he's like, I can tell you floss. Yes, I floss. He's like, I'll tell you if everybody flossed, I'd be out of business. And so, you know, I kind of think about that's my approach to, to being a financial advisor there. I'm not saying that's the right approach. That's just my approach. And so the part that I love the most was about helping people create lives of well, financial well-being 
I don't know if we'll have time to get to this or not, but I mean, it's actually what brought me to where I, I currently am, where I, the, the question that dominates my days and that I am just, I really think all of this led up to was what is the difference to being wealthy, W-E-A-L-T-H-Y, and what is the di- difference between that and being wealthy, W-E-L-L-T-H-Y. But I'm fast forwarding a number of years. At that time, what really surprised me was how much I enjoyed having those conversations, which after years of an exceptionally technical, you know, where I'm talking about shark ratios and trainer ratios and tracking error on a very regular basis, that I that that's the part I liked was a huge surprise. So so what was the next shift that came? You you launched the advisory firm you know, the RAA a couple of years into the, in the money's end platform by, you know, I'm trying to remember when it was like around 2015, give or take a little. And we had the, you know, fateful dinner at our little introverts corner. You were tied in more directly with, with BAM Alliance, I think by that time. So what, what changed in the trajectory of the advisory firm? Well, my marriage fell apart. That, that was the primary catalyst. So I actually started the advisory firm and 2012. And in 2015, I was just about to sign the client that would, no, in 2014, I was just about to sign the client that would push us, have pushed us over 50 million. So that in two years, so I felt like, you know, for a lifestyle business, we're heading in the right direction. That's a phenomenal number. There are advisors that take 20 years to get to $50 $50 million and half a million of recurring revenue at a 1% fee. Like that's a phenomenal growth trajectory. And I'll tell you, I look, I look back and I don't think I had n- nearly the, because those numbers were so different than what I was used to in the institutional world, I did not realize the magnitude of the success that I was having. Oh, right. Because institutional world, this was like $6 billion in a couple of years. Because the, the, the scales are a little different. And my mind hadn't shifted yet to that world. And because I had employees, the revenue wasn't generating the level of profits that it would have been if I were truly a solo, you know, I've I've got my TAMP fees and then I had full-time employee. And then because of the media stuff I needed help with, I also had an assistant to help with that. So it's, it's not like it was a wildly profitable endeavor at those levels. And right at the time that I was about to to sign with this this client that would have pushed us over the edge to use a phrase that Princess Di used when she was interviewed in that famous interview with Martin Bashir. And she said, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. So that's what happened to me. And I, we started divorce proceedings and I'm a TAMP client, if you will, of the BAM Alliance. And at the head of, at that time, the head of marketing for Buckingham and the BAM Alliance was Dave Levin, and he's now the president. And Dave's a real sweet, kind man. And he was checking in as he would on any you know uh, firm within the network, just his periodic check-in. And we did it via video. And he asked me this fateful question. He said, how are you? And I just burst into tears and I'm just like sobbing. And one thing leads to another, and pretty quickly, because Adam Birnbaum is is very visionary, as is Dave. Next thing I know, we're you know we're talking, and I they invited me to come in house and head up uh, an initiative around women. 
And it just kind of all came together. It was, and it came together as like a big, you know, mud puddle, right? It's my, my personal life is completely falling apart. I'm realizing that I, I enjoy meaningful conversations and I enjoy motivating women, but I don't enjoy the logistics of, of being an advisor on a day-to-day basis. I also realize that I am an entrepreneur, not an entrepreneur. And I also, to be just completely honest, was exhausted. And the folks at BAM were just so kind. It had been like family when I was trying to get the RIA off and running that it just felt like I was like coming back into a nest to blend my practice in with the firm and take on another role. It was just profoundly comforting at a really difficult point in, in my life. It wasn't like I planned for that to happen. I love that framing, though, that to say you you realize you are more of an intrapreneur than an entrepreneur. You know, for those who haven't heard the term, I think we all come to entrepreneur, like going out and starting your business, you know, foraging in the in the wilds to build it from scratch with your own two hands, and that that kind of business startup vision. You know, and then there's this other domain that that sometimes gets called intrapreneurship, which is like trying to build that within an existing business. And it's just a different kind of phenomenon. You know, the the good news is you tend to have more access to resources or at least can get access to them quickly in infrastructure if this starts to work and scale because you're you're within a larger firm. Uh, the challenge is, you know, there's a whole bunch of existing culture and business lines and dividing lines and and corporate politics that may come up if you're new thing you're making is doing better than someone else's like you 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 have to navigate some internal corporate business dynamics but you also sometimes get to leverage some internal corporate infrastructure and it's just a a different style of building and creating something and it's i had just not realized how starkly different the two are until I fast forwarded into my my current role at Brighton Jones, and I'm back to being an entrepreneur. And I'm like, whoa, this is who I am. Um, but just to wrap the the Buckingham Bam stage of my life, so I I was there for three years. They could not have been better to me. It was a great time. They were experimenting with having external thought leaders, so Carl Richard, Stan Solon, myself, Tim Maurer, and. Uh, you know, things shift. They're an innovative firm. And, and as the younger generation, as some of the founding partners started to retire and the younger generation was starting to implement new, more innovative ideas, lots of shifts. And I think that the universe just sort of conspired because they're in St. Louis and I was in Santa Fe. And I had decided I could either, when I got divorced, I decided I could either go back east where my family was and admit that I had failed adulting, or I could go west and see what was out there. And so I uh, did a mini eat, love, pray. I While the divorce proceedings were going on, I rented places on Airbnb in a bunch of different cities, picked very strategically for density of artisanal coffee per capita. And so amongst the cities on the list was Portland, Oregon. And I came here and I just loved it immediately. But by this time, I, I was just tired. I, I For all these years, I'd been traveling almost weekly and just going from Portland to St. Louis, the flights aren't great. It was just exhausting. And 
my, again, serendipity, my accountant um, moved from one of the largest accounting firms in Portland to Brighton Jones, who has a tax practice in addition to a wealth management practice. And I came in with my tax work and I was just exhausted from travel. And she said, you know, you, you should talk to our CEO. First, I talked to Charles Brighton on a Friday. And then Charles was like, I think you need to talk to John. So I talked to John. And one thing led to another and it all just came together. And also Brighton Jones has an office in Portland and it, it just all came together. And so I was ready to finally set some roots down. And that's how I ended up where I am now. And I'm back to being an entrepreneur and it's like a dream come true. So help us understand, I, I, I guess, let me even start one moment back at Buckingham and then kind of update us to 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 Brighton Jones. Like, what did this role look like when you're at Buckingham? Was it still largely the media stuff you were doing? The deal now was just, hey, rather than worrying about building your own advisory firm, we're a big firm. We've got all these advisors that can take the clients and build and scale this. And we've got the back office and the rest. Like, just go be media minutia and generate some business and the firm will get the business and we'll pay you a whatever you a salary and a bonus for business development and just you can attach to us and go make rain was like was that the deal or did it look different exactly like that and i mean it for the time in my life it was perfect and i'm just I'm so profoundly grateful. And Larry Swedrow in particular took me under his wing and I get teary just talking about it. Larry was was such a kind figure during a very difficult period in my life. They were wonderful people. And that was the that was the role that I did there. And it was the exact role for the painful stage of life that I was in then. And and so you seem to have made this distinction now of what your role is at at Brighton Jones, that you framed it as more entrepreneurial in in nature. So can you talk a little bit now about, like, I guess, what is Brighton Jones? Just bring everyone up to speed for those who aren't familiar with the firm. And then, like, what is this entrepreneur role thing you're doing there now? Sure. So Brighton Jones is a 20-year-old RIA based out of Seattle. We have offices in D.C., Seattle, Portland, D.C., Scottsdale, and San Francisco. And we offer a, a wide range of services right now. So we have traditional high net worth offering. We've also just launched um, what we call Open, which is entry level for individuals that are in asset accumulation, but but not yet at the high net worth level. We have an entire tax practice. We're just launching an estate law practice. So I, pretty soon people can come and it'll literally be truly one-stop shopping. And we're traditional fiduciary RIA in the DFA world, strong believers in evidence-based investing. And the thing that uh, really sets Brighton Jones apart, in my opinion, is just the incredibly unique culture that Charles Brighton and John Jones have have built. They certainly could have made more money personally, but they have deeply invested in clients and colleagues and the community in a way that I've not seen before. So that's that's who the firm is. And so, you know, from a, an investment standpoint, so we have, we look at it in two different ways because, because we have assets in the tax 
just over $5 billion in assets under management, but because our revenue source comes from other sorts of, of products as well, we also think about assets under advisement. And so we're at $8 billion in assets under advisement. It was, so it's a natural fix. I'm still in the DFA world, still in the evidence-based world. I'm just not on a plane every three days. So can you talk just a little bit more about what the role looks like? Like, are you still heavily similar to Buckingham Bam? Just Manisha, go be your awesome media-facing self. At some point, people are going to look you up and it'll bring them back to Brighton Jones and we'll have an opportunity to work with them. Or is there other, not that there's anything wrong with like simply doing that, but it, it sounds like there's some other stuff to the role as well. Yeah. So what's when I came aboard, the idea was that I would be a, a brand ambassador for Brighton Jones and that I would uh, essentially do the, the same kind of work that I was wearing a hat for at, at BAM. The change was a month or two after I got to the firm, John Jones, who reminds me of Richard Branson and every sense of the way, like just who off the, he actually, he actually looks like him and just off the charts creative. He, we, we do twice a year team meetings called team week and everybody comes together and he announces at team week that we are pivoting towards well-being with all four limbs in. And we don't know exactly what that's going to look like from a monetization standpoint. And we don't even know what that's going to look like right now from a service offering standpoint. But from this point forward, we are um, incorporating well-being into absolutely every nook and cranny of the, the business. And so this was... 12 months ago now. So, I mean, it's still very, very new. And the idea is 10 years from now, we'll know exactly what it is and we'll be monetizing it. What I was able to do was um, early on be a part of this, this process. And so for me, the most fun part of it has been doing what you have been doing and what we've been doing right here, which is we've just launched a podcast called True Wealth, W-E-L-L-T-H. And the idea is to use it as, on one hand, as a, a, vet, a place to discuss questions that we don't always talk about. Like, what if everything we've ever been taught about money and quote unquote making it is wrong? And what if, you know, the the modern definition of success is actually just a recipe for increased disconnection from yourself and others and your life. Well, that's kind of depressing. <laughs> no, well, that so would be a bummer. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> so we explore these big questions that hit people who've achieved levels of wealth and are like, holy crud, I made it to the top of the summit. And this is not how I expected to feel. And so that's really the, the premise is how do you build how do you align the way you spend your money and your time with what matters most to you in life with a recognition that it is a luxury to be, you know, with 7 billion people on the globe, it is a luxury for that to be the question that you're optimizing for. But that's what gets me so excited is that because going back, I, you know, as I said, the part that surprised me the most about being for during my period of having my my own practice, what surprised me most was how much I love those big picture conversations. And you know, 
concurrent with all of this, I've sat on various different boards. I was on the National Board of the Girl Scouts for three years. Now I'm on the Board of the National Endowment for Financial Education. And I've always gravitated towards the investment committee on all of those because I can definitely add value there. So I'm still utilizing my CFA brain in that manner. And I utilize my CFP brain in the sense that a lot of the content that I, I put out, the, the podcast is what I'm most excited about right now, but I will continue to do stuff across all the other lines, blogging, writing books. We're going to start doing more with video events. And that's where I really use my CFP brain by talking to our advisors, understanding what clients are currently talking about and putting together content that addresses and answers those questions. The thing that I'm most excited about is that we're doing all of this in the context of money, meaning, and purpose and helping people doing all the same services that we normally do, but under this broader umbrella. And the, in, the um, entrepreneurial part is trying to figure out how you blend, like, what does that look like going forward, you know? And how do you do that in a multi-billion dollar firm? So at a personal level, like, wh- what does a typical week look like for you at this point? Oh, gracious. So it's like all over the map. So today, I am very heavily focused. We're wrapping up the soft launch of True Wealth and getting all the kinks out. We've got our first five episodes out and you know we're officially launching it on April 1st. And so I'm doing a whole bunch of stuff around the logistics of making sure everybody internally knows what it's about, that we're messaging to clients so they understand clearly what it's about and how it will benefit them. And then starting to seed with the media so people know we're alive and out there. And then, you know, the next two days, I'm going to be in Santa Monica at DFA with my media study group, where we're going to be talking about these big issues of how do you monetize, how do you take media in all of its multiple forms now and monetize. And then I'm spending Thursday and Friday up in Seattle, where I will be interviewing a couple more folks for the podcast. And Michael, we have to have you on if you have time in your busy schedule. And and then we have a huge client event that that we're doing for our, our women perspective and current clients. And I will be the speaker for for that. And so, you know, that's kind of an average week. It's sort of all over the place. And and some weeks, you know, people will especially in our Portland office, um, if they're people I meet, I will help them get through the process and team up with an advisory team. And so I'll I'll sit in and listen in on discovery and planning where it's appropriate. And um, I love doing that because it gives me more ideas to write and talk about. And the people coming in love it because it's not a cold baton pass off. And so that's probably the other component that comes into my week's. But if I had to summarize, I would say it's almost as if I'm I'm trying to help build out a financial well-being multimedia platform across podcast, video, blogs, ebooks, and events. So I love that a financial well-being multimedia platform. As we approach the end here, like I'm I'm curious just for a few more of your thoughts or look looking back over this arc over this evolution of of your career and and I guess particularly back to the early days you know I'm, I'm you know it's so hard to me in the industry now where 
people still start out young. And I mean, we always started out young. The industry's always recruited out of college. But it was one thing when people got recruited in their 20s and it was like, here's a phone book and the product of the day, go cold call. Like, it sucked, but at least, you know, everyone sold this through the phone. You know, you just, it was a smile and dial numbers kind of game. It was what it was. You, you know, you, you tried to be slick enough on the phone to, to get a sale. As we've evolved into this more advice advisor oriented business, including one that's more in person, I find like it, it gets harder as an advisor when you're young and starting out, like just trying to establish your credibility. Like, yes, I look like a teenager, but I really can manage your money and give you responsible financial advice. You know, as you said earlier, like you're at an event to be the speaker and they think you're there to take the coffee order. Like, how do you, I guess something like, how, how do you build the confidence to speak? To establish your credibility, uh, you know, I think, frankly, in a male-dominated industry as we are, I, I can only imagine it's it's even harder as a woman. It's hard enough as a man. How did you get over that hump of building your own confidence, trying to get credibility as a person who was young and looked young and had to establish themselves with clients? My path is just so different because my first fifteen years where. I was being asked for the coffee. We're all on the institutional side. And so I, by the time I left that, I had such confidence. I had built out this business. I had done exceptionally well for myself financially. I had established a level of professional confidence and a degree of financial independence that I could truly uh, afford to just be myself and try anything and see what happened. And so also by the time I'm like out trying to do this, you know, I'm I'm a Harvard MBA, I'm a CFA. I've just gotten my CFP. I've spent my whole industry my whole career, you know, I was 15 years in the financial services, so I wasn't starting out the way most people start out in terms of um not want to experience in terms of the age issue. I had enough data points along the way that people felt like, well, okay, she's not a moron. I, What I didn't have and what people won't have when they're starting out was 10 years of experience managing individual people's money and dealing with complex personal finance planning issues on an individual level. And knowing what I know now, I would have to say, I think the best thing you can do is align yourself with an entity or a larger organization that provides you with resources, education, and street cred, if you will, in order – because if you're just truly on your own, this goes back to my very opening comment, like no one creates anything by themselves. I would say that, and I would also say it's not easy. I mean, part of the reason my marriage fell apart was because I work all the time. And as I approach 50, I'm finally, and part of the reason this podcast means so much to me is that I am one of those people who the first part, but not the second part of wealthy, wealthy, you know? And I just, so I I guess I just want to say is if it feels hard, it's because it's hard, you know? There's nobody who makes it through without feeling it's hard. What was the low point? Without a doubt, when my marriage fell apart, without a doubt. And just trying to balance the business on top of that. 
Yeah, I mean, I actually have a great relationship now with my ex-husband and um, very amicable. But I mean, it just whew, hit me out of the blue. No idea it was coming. It's one of those things where just, you know, trying to keep a business going when your personal life just blows up. It's it's hard. And so without a doubt, that was the the lowest, lowest, lowest point. And and how I mean, how do you cope? What what worked for you? You know, I mean, by the grace of God, Dave Levin asked me, you know, how are you? You know, but for that, had I tried to keep carrying on on my own, I don't know what would have happened. And so, you know, I got a bear hug of love from my tamp and it 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 was like this miracle nest that I got pulled into at a, a point where I I don't know what I would have done. And so, you know, there's serendipity for you. Sorry to say, like I think serendipity and being willing to accept the outreached hand when it comes. Yeah. Well, and I will also say I told every one of my clients exactly what was going on and, you know, let people know I'm having a rough patch. If you feel at all uncomfortable, I'll try and help you find another advisor. If you want to stick with me, everybody came over and and it was just people were wonderful because I didn't hide it. Honest. And also I couldn't hide it because all literally all somebody would have to ask me is, how are you? Which is how most conversations start. And I would like, you know, burst into tears. So I might as well just be transparent about it. So that's how I made it through. I think that's a striking thing. I think for most advisors, the gut response, like I, you know, I still have to have the professional sheen with clients like they can't know about my own inner turmoil and challenges in personal life, because then they'll doubt me and whether I can serve them. And like, you went the exact opposite, just all in like, here it is, here's where I am. I'll help you transition to another advisor if you want to. And because of that, no one wanted to leave. Just to end on like a real whopper of a note, I will say one of the things that happened when I moved to Portland and I finally stopped traveling constantly, I have long struggled with depression and anxiety. And I, you know, but I've always been too busy to actually, you know, tell my general physician, like sometimes I'm depressed. I feel a lot of anxiety and, you know, they give you Prozac. And I just thought it was normal to work like a crazy person and have these ups and downs. And when I moved to Portland, I actually got a actual psychiatrist. And because she didn't know me, she wanted to see me regularly. And after about a year, she says, you do not have depression or anxiety. You are bipolar. And the reason no one has diagnosed diagnosed you as bipolar, which used to be called manic depression, is that when you are in hypomania, most people do crazy things like excessive drinking or excessive spending or gambling. And when you are in hypomania, you work all night. And because you're in finance, that's called being a good employee. And no one, and you know, it's like this life changing moment because I, that's exactly what happened. And I went on a typical antipsychotics and I am shocked at what it feels like to be a normal human being. So I've been on them about two years and I'm very, very open about the fact that I'm bipolar because I feel like in our industry, it's so difficult to talk about mental health. I don't know if I were still actively seeing individual clients, if I would feel as comfortable talking about it as I do now. I, I'd like to think, I mean, I certainly 
uh, was very open with my clients at Money Zen about struggling with depression and anxiety. And, you know, they're smart, successful women. Most of them are too. For some people, it's situational. For me, it was extremely chemical. So I, I don't know if I would have said that. But, you know, Winston Churchill was bipolar and Teddy Roosevelt was and Ted Turner is and Mariah Carey is. And, you know, a shocking number of people struggle with a true mental illness and society, you know, after money, I think that's the next big taboo to break. So when you bring, and I, I, I bring this up just to say that knowing that will now make some people say like that woman, I thought she was crazy and now I know she's crazy. <laughs> or other people may say like, wow, like she's real. I like that. And so, you know, to kind of come full circle, if there's any lesson that I feel I could share that would be worthwhile, I think it would boil down to nobody does anything alone. Human relations and, and connections are the most important thing. They keep us sane and healthy as humans. And they also, when they're, when they're genuine, help us build our businesses and don't underestimate the power of being yourself. It's so much less exhausting than trying to be someone you're not. And you will attract the right people to you and you will repel the people that you would have had to be someone else in front of. And, you know, that's kind of a, a wonderful filter, if you will. So as we wrap up, you know, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the things we always observe is just literally that word success means different things to different people, uh, sometimes different things to us as, as we go through stages in our lives. And so you, you've, you've built this successful brand, you know, found lots of different ways over the years to monetize it and attach it to different platforms. But um, I'm just wondering for yourself now, how do you define success for yourself? So I'm not there yet. And in terms of having achieved what I would call success, but when I feel like I am living a life of true well-being defined as John Jones would as having integrated social, emotional, physical, and financial well-being, then I will consider myself successful. I have focused almost exclusively on the financial component of success or well-being and I've I've missed social, emotional, and physical and to me I will be successful when my days are not, I don't want to say happy because I feel like that's another overutilized word, but full of peace and contentment because I actually have a, a truly balanced life and I am, and it, I'm enjoying things for myself, but I'm also making contributions to things that are much bigger than myself. And maybe the, the best note to end on is I had gone to Laos, oh gosh, right right before my my marriage fell apart. So right in the middle of building um, Money Zen, I had gone to Laos and I contracted dengue fever and I was in and out of the hospital for a month and I almost died, which is another great thing to have happen to you in the first two years of building a business. And my clients were all wonderful. I notified them immediately. And when I finally got home, my, my home looked like a florist shop. People were so kind. But the there was one point when I was back in the emergency room, you know, for the umpteenth time, it felt like, where I thought I was going to die. And I could tell the doctors thought I was going to die. I could tell my ex-husband thought I was going to die. And then my whole family was flown in. So, like, it was clear. And I remember 
lying there thinking, oh my God, this might be it. And I tear up when I say this, but it really is true. When that happens, you do not think about work. You think about your family and you think about your friends. And at that point in my career, I don't think I had done enough from a non-ego standpoint to give outward to have included that component. So the next time I come close to dying, I hope I think about family, friends, and community. But I, I, I thought about family and friends and not about money and not about professional success. Well, it's a powerful story. Hopefully, I wish more of us could learn it and figure it out without having to actually have near-death moments. But it would be so much easier that way. But it's, it's a powerful perspective. You know, thank you, Minisha, for for sharing for sharing the whole story and the and the journey here on on the podcast. Michael, can I say one last thing? John Jones said this to me, and I think it's some of the most brilliant six words. We were talking about sort of the evolution of of a human, and he pointed out that there are three stages: to me, by me, and through me. And the point is, early on, when you're younger, you feel like things happen to you because you're under parental control. They're happening to you. Then early on in your career, you often think like, I am, I am the bomb. This is happening because of me. It's happening by me. And then you reach a stage where you realize anything really worthwhile, it's not you. It comes through you. It's, it's, and that's why I say, the next time I hit that moment where I think, whoa, this is it. I hope I'm thinking it's family, friends, and community. What 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 did I help contribute through me that makes some kind of lasting positive impact? And I th- I think that I am I am just starting that journey of of the awareness of through me, and that's probably the last piece. If somebody were to ask me to sum up the top three, that that would be the third point that I would I would love to leave people with. Well, I'm I hope the not to be corny, like I I hope the message comes through you for the for the podcast here for for people that are listening. I think it's a pretty powerful. A story journey of what you've been through. So thank you again so much for, for sharing with us today. Oh, Michael, thank you for having me. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.